If UPS does not meet the demands of the Teamsters, picket lines will go up on August 1st. If this happens, the strike will be one of the largest in American history. As the contract expiration looms less than two months away, other workers across the country are also standing up to demand more. From a wave of successful union elections at Starbucks, Trader Joe's, and other retail stores, to walkouts from Amazon to Hollywood, American workers fighting for dignity and fair compensation through collective action have momentum on their side. The most important and promising independent union organizing in the world is happening right here, right now, in Mexico. Shauna Bader Blouse told those gathered in Mexico City. Okay, well, here's the deal. You're going through West Virginia. You've never driven through West Virginia. Assume that there isn't gonna be cell service if you break down to call out on your flip phone. There's the owning class and the working class. Where are you at? Are you slow or fast? All you gotta do is do the math. If you got a job, you're working class. If you're out of a job, you're really working class. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. On this week's show, if 350,000 Teamsters strike UPS on August 1st, They'll be hitting the streets for millions of dispossessed working and middle-class Americans. The Working People podcast talks with Teamster Local 705, Sean Orr. Then, the Solidarity Center podcast celebrates 25 years of supporting Mexican workers. What does it mean to be a power lineman? Bryce Hubbard explains on the Powerline podcast. In our last segment... From your rights at work, Professor Louis breaks down what it really means to be working class. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today, brought to you in partnership with In These Times Magazine and The Real News Network, produced by Jules Taylor, and made possible by the support of listeners like you. Working People is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. My name is Maximilian Alvarez, and I am very excited to get to sit down and chat with our guest, Sean, today. I'm going to read a couple of passages here from a great piece that uh, Sean co-wrote with another UPSer and shop steward, Elliot Lewis. Uh, This was published in Jacobin. So in this piece, Sean and Elliot write, quote, With the largest private sector labor contract in the United States set to expire at midnight on July 31st, the eyes of the American labor movement are on United Parcel Service, or UPS, and the nearly 350,000 Teamsters like us that work there. Talk is coming from all corners of a potential strike. International Brotherhood of Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien made it clear on day one of his presidency. If UPS does not meet the demands of the Teamsters, 
Picket lines will go up on August 1st. If this happens, the strike will be one of the largest in American history. As the contract expiration looms less than two months away, other workers across the country are also standing up to demand more. From a wave of successful union elections at Starbucks, Trader Joe's, and other retail stores, to walkouts from Amazon to Hollywood, American workers fighting for dignity and fair compensation through collective action have momentum on their side. In return, employers have intensified their union busting. The UPS contract fight, therefore, comes at a pivotal moment for U.S. labor. What happens here could shape the direction of the movement for years to come. Not only because this contract covers several hundred thousand workers who move 6% of U.S. GDP daily, but also because the issues at stake in this fight are representative of those faced by workers across the country. This contract fight is about two visions of work in the 21st century. One is promoted by workers, equal pay for equal work, dignity and autonomy on the job, and a stable work-life balance. The other is promoted by Wall Street, hyper-surveillance, low pay, subcontracting, gig work, and quote-unquote flexible scheduling practices that hurt workers and benefit bosses end quote so i was born in 1992 like a lot of milwaukee's heyday manufacturing good jobs like this was a city that was it was i think like top three manufacturing output in the whole country like there was so much made in milwaukee obviously miller and harley davidson all those like big name brands but just like a ton of stuff was made there it was like over a quarter of the city worked in 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 factories you know and by the time I was born, a lot of that had been shuttered. It was like from the mid-70s through the late 80s was just one place after the other just shuttering and workers fighting like hell to try to hold on and it just it didn't happen, you know? Um, but those buildings are still there. In the city of Milwaukee, you've got um, Alan uh, Bradley. Uh, you know, they make like, they made these like automated like control systems, like these panels for factories, for assembly lines and stuff. And their factory is huge. You know, it's this like nine story cement concrete structure just plopped down right in the middle of the south side. It's got the biggest clock tower in the world on it. And it was a place that had at the height, I think like 12,000 full-time union jobs. And those were good jobs. That was a UE local, United Electrical Workers, really militant union, really involved in the neighborhood, in the city, in local politics. Um, and I think the last union workers retired from there 20, 20, uh, 2009, 2010, something like that. And now this massive nine-story structure, it's still there. So like these, like, but that's still standing over the neighborhood where all the people in that neighborhood used to work there. And, you know, all that is gone. You know, people are scrambling to find jobs. People like talk about, you know, they talk about the Rust Belt as if it's like a natural phenomenon, like a famine that came through or like, you know, a plague of locusts. It's like, oh, yeah, this just, yeah, this sucks. But, you know, that's the way the world goes. You know, you just got to live with it. It's like, no, like this was deliberate. This was a conscious effort. People, there were human beings that made decisions, conscious decisions, that it was better to wreck all of this social and economic destruction 
on, hundred, on hundreds of thousands of people in Milwaukee, and then you extrapolate that across all these other regions. It's better to have that than to continue to have these people be our employees. We can't just like keep our blinders on. We have to see that what's being done to us, it's not just some natural thing. It's a planned thing. It's something that's planned. There's deliberate ideas behind it. And if it's human ideas, if it's deliberate ideas, then that means we don't have to accept it. It means that, you know what, that might be wrong. That might not be right for us. Maybe we can actually do something different, you know? And we're seeing, you know, the new plans, the plans around how our logistics industry needs to be run, around how our economy needs to be run after COVID. We're seeing that play out in our contract fight. And we're, we, we're, we're fed up with it. We, we think we should have a different vision for how our lives should be in the future, you know? Hell yeah, man. Well, well and I think that that's uh, one of many reasons why, you know, people should be invested in this fight and also why they should be invested in the labor movement. If you're not a, a, a teamster, uh, there's all, all sorts of ways to get involved. Get your union involved. Uh, put out a, a solidarity statement with uh, the Teamsters. DSA has this incredible campaign, DSA Strike Ready, to build support for uh, the Teamsters in this fight. We've got uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of chapters uh, working with rank-and-file Teamsters, working in the community, uh, going to do community canvases, community rallies, really building the level of public support and public solidarity that we need to win this fight. So I would say get connected up with DSA, get involved in that. But most importantly, come out in August, show some love to the Teamsters if we're on the picket line, and uh, help us uh, transform the labor movement and transform this country. The following news article is a service of the Solidarity Center podcast, June 15, 2023. The Solidarity Center celebrates 25 years of supporting Mexican workers. A quarter century since joining the fight for worker rights in Mexico, the Solidarity Center celebrated the progress made amid reflections on the historic moment workers and their allies face in the country. The most important and promising independent union organizing in the world is happening right here, right now, in Mexico. Shauna Bader-Blau, Solidarity Center Executive Director, told those gathered in Mexico City for the anniversary celebration. To mark the occasion, the Solidarity Center organized a week of activities to honor the work of partners from the independent Mexican trade union movement, strengthen transnational solidarity, examine the challenges that lie ahead, and build a path toward a more just Mexico. From May 29th to June 1st, trade union leaders and workers from across the country joined scholars and activists from Mexico and the United States, as well as representatives from both countries' governments, to continue the collective work to ensure that recent labor law reforms and trade agreements put workers' interests at the forefront. 
After three years of historic change since the reforms, the emergence of a new generation of labor leaders demonstrates that Mexican workers hold it within themselves to build an inclusive and responsive labor movement. The Solidarity Center proudly recognized their achievements. It's an honor to join together with so many brothers and sisters, with so many organizations that just a year ago did not exist and who are now working to strengthen freedom of association and collective bargaining in Mexico, said Paolo Marinaro, Mexico Country Program Director, speaking to allies as he introduced an international forum on the labor reforms held during the week. Over its 25 years of work in Mexico, the Solidarity Center has supported grassroots organizing and lifted authentic worker voices to help dismantle a system that for too long ignored the plight of workers and catered to the interests of the rich and powerful. Today, more so than any time in the country's history, the Mexican labor movement represents the full spectrum of Mexican workers. Over the course of the week, the diversity of Mexico's new labor leaders did not go unnoticed. The Solidarity Center is honored to work with young workers, women-led unions, emerging and established democratic leadership, organizations formed by migrant and indigenous workers, and others who are revitalizing the Mexican labor movement and inspiring the global labor movement, Bader Blau said. Mexico's new and more representative labor unions have won path-breaking victories that have inspired a new wave of labor organizing in the country. With Solidarity Center support, in just the last year, over 20,000 Mexican workers have negotiated strong contracts with historic wage increases and workplace protections. From St. Gobain workers in Cuautla Morelos to 3M workers in San Luis Potosi, the new independent labor movement continues to bring tangible benefits to a workforce long held in check through collusion between employers, the government, and corrupt unions. Despite these important victories, the promise of the labor reforms has not been fully realized. For that reason, the Solidarity Center begins its 26th year in Mexico, committed to helping Mexican workers build the power necessary to create a more just economy and a more prosperous country. All right, guys, welcome to Powerline Podcast. This is episode 109. This week's guest is Bryce Hubbard. We dive into a topic that I get the question quite often, and I ask this question quite a bit, is what does it truly mean to be a journeyman lineman? We talk about a host of other topics, but this is the one we really nailed down. Hope this episode brings you some value. I hope you dig it. Let's jump right into it. Bryce Hubbard, episode 109. Let's get it. What are you seeing in today's youth and their ability to handle pressure? Were we the same way at that age or is it the same thing or are they different? Um, it's, it's interesting that you, uh, this question came up because, uh, I just yesterday, I talked with a good friend who, uh, enlisted in the army at 
20 years old and graduated high school with him. And we were talking about the difference of soldiers versus when he got in to what's in there now. I don't know. I mean, the things that they're worried about, I, is it any less significant than what I worried about at 18? I don't really know. I remember, so I, I took off I t- some context around the question. I, I took off from home at 18 years old. I left for Australia and you mentioned, um, you know, no cell phone, no smartphone, no, like I had no cell, no smartphone, Atlas Matt, like just my tickets. I felt, figured everything out on my own life. I had to go through Japan, to, you know, Kuala Lumpur, to Australia. And I was there for six months. Didn't know a soul figured it out, took the train, took the Mm. bus, just like figured it out. And I just, I I don't know if they're the same way. Like I have a son that's 18 turning 19. I turned 19 in Australia and he's turning 19 now. And I just don't, I I see this world that they're living in now. And I'm just like, I don't know if you could handle doing it. Yeah. And it, (laughs) it, it makes me wonder, um, is the same amount of pressure being applied. Mm-hmm. Like as simple as uh, just traveling for me across the country um, when I was 19 with an atlas. Okay, well, here's the deal. You're not going to, like, uh, you're going through West Virginia. You've never driven through West Virginia. Uh, assume that there isn't going to be cell service if you break down. Um, on to call out on your flip phone. Um, you know, Google, like that's not a thing, on your phone's not a thing. Um, so like the pressure in that situation is have your route planned out. Um, when when we were driving with my family as kids, like dad, mom, what mile marker did we just pass? What exit, what was the last exit you passed? Dude, I, I drive 30 minutes down the road. I There's sometimes like, how did I even get here? Because you're just zoned out. You're listening to music. Turn left in a quarter mile. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so is the same amount of pressure being applied just in the general sense of life? Probably not. I wouldn't. I mean, all everything has made our life just in, we're talking in the past 12 years, significantly easier yeah. to navigate a, a thousand mile trip how does that translate into the apprenticeships um there is there is some there's different types of pressure but i know that in the sense of hard-nosed linemen you know being on your back and breathing down your neck probably not so much this is a public Welcome to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock. The 40th Great Labor Arts Exchange starts today. 
It's an annual gathering of labor activists and artists who are exploring how to integrate the arts into the labor movement. Complete details are at laborheritage.org. Next up, working class from Professor Louis. What does it mean to be working class? Is that something from out of the past? Do we always got to come in last? That's the question I'm going to ask. What does it mean to be working class? Because today you say you're middle class. You can't pay the doctor, your car needs gas. You're still paying off your college class. Watch all your credit card is never passed. Still you're middle class this and middle class that. Up a lower middle class till you eat your hat, got the gap on your back. You got a little fat. You're still paying for the chair where you just sat. Is it all over just like that? Who stole a good life? Where's it at? Oh, it's middle class. Just a little dream made up for you on your TV screen. Where everybody's comfy or so it seems, and no one ever eats rice and beans. Because in the beginning, there was just two classes. There was the elite and there was the masses. We did the work. They kicked our asses. Most everything passes. There are still two classes, those who got it and those who don't. We think we're going to get it, but really we won't. Those who own the companies and make the big deals, every deal could cost you a meal. And for real, not too many people hold the power. They make a million bucks while they take a shower. There's the owning class and the working class. Where are you at? Are you slow or fast? All you got to do is do the math. If you got a job, you're working class. If you're out of a job, you're really working class. We build the houses, work the fields. We run the hospitals and fix the meals. We make the family and work at home. Sometimes that's the hardest work of all. We clean the office. We teach the kids. Everything around us is something we did. No matter what your color or your name. No matter the country from where you came, the name of the game is still the same. And if the owner works, is he working class? Got his laptop and smartphone? He's moving fast. It all depends. First and last. If he owns a bodega or a little machine shop, he works for his money and he works a lot. He might be working for everything he got. But the guy who owns the corporation, he could work all day. It won't change him. He might be a nice guy. He might be a jerk. He makes his big money off of other people's work. You can't make millions going to work and getting paid. You need other people's work to have it made. When we punch the clock, he owns the stock. We do the labor, but he gets the flavor. We make the honey, but he takes the money. Because working people make everything. We're the ones make the cash register ring. And when our work goes to someone else's profit, now you got it and you don't got to ask. That's what makes us working class. And if I talk about class just a little more, your TV says we're starting class war, but the real news has come and gone. The class war is always on. It has been here since the day you were born. We just need to know whose side we're on. If we don't know our own class, take it from the poet, we will always take a beating and we won't even know it because your TV is programmed by the owning class. Your newspaper programmed by the owning class, your search engine programmed by the owning class. When we don't know we're working class, the owning class will kick our ass. They get a real free pass because you get no health care, get lousy schools. The TV brings your kids up to act like fools. You get no union. You lose your job. You vote for politicians who think you're a slob because we sometimes forget there's a bottom and a top. Those who got it and those who do not. Better to remember, make no mistake, you're not an owner. You're a 
work on it, and that's the breaks. And I bet there's nobody listening here who made $10 million just this year. So before I waste any more breath, before I talk myself to death, let me ask you to act on a fact that has come to pass. Your ass is in the working class. And before we get to another day, when we open our mouths with something to say, before you speak and the words are gone, it's good to know whose side you're on and what it means to be working class. Is that something from out of the past? Do we always got to come in last? That's the question we got to ask. What does it mean to be working class? And one last little question before I'm gone. Tell me, whose side are you on? Come all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell Of how the good old union has come in here to dwell Which side are you on? 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 I'm Rick Smith. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1947. That was the day that many labor historians mark as the beginning of a long decline of the U.S. labor movement. The United States Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act. The bill was named after Republican Senator Robert A. Taft from Ohio. The son of President William Howard Taft, the senator had been a staunch opponent of President Roosevelt's New Deal policies. He continued his anti-working class efforts with a new bill aimed to curb the power of unions. He found an ally in Representative Fred Hartley, a Republican congressman from New Jersey. After World War II, a wave of strikes washed over the nation. Most labor unions had agreed not to go on strike during the war, but frustrations over wages and working conditions mounted. In the years after the conflict ended, five million workers walked the picket lines. One in four private sector workers was a union member. Labor was on the march. The Congressional Republicans passed the Taft-Hartley Act in response. The bill ushered in limits on the right to strike. It also began the era of so-called right to work, allowing states to pass laws, making it more difficult for unions to collect dues and represent workers. The new law also required union leaders to sign affidavits that they were not communists, bringing the Red Scare to the House of Labor. A massive rally at Madison Square Garden in New York City asked President Truman to veto the slave labor bill. President Truman did veto the bill, but Congress overrode his veto. Today, only 12% of workers are in unions. 26 states are so-called right-to-work states, to the great detriment of workers' living standards and their health and safety. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. And that's gonna do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a small sampling of the programs aired over the last week on more than 100 labor radio and podcast shows. We threw in a little bonus track for you there, today's Labor History in Two, just because it fit today's theme. All of these shows are part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all of the shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always and forever, Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, thanks so much for listening. This is Chris Garlock. Stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. We'll see you next week.